turn to the the book of Acts, chapter 16. Uh, You may have it marked from last week. Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 16. Six hours is not a very long time. Really think about it. Six hours is is not very much. 360 minutes. Just one quarter of one day. And that one quarter of one day is during the time in which most of us are unconscious. Six hours. You wouldn't think that much can be accomplished in six hours. In Acts chapter 16, two men, two missionaries, named Paul and Silas were in a city called Philippi. They were there telling people about Jesus Christ. They were sharing the good news, the saving news, the the powerful news of Jesus Christ. And one of the persons that they encountered was a young woman who was possessed by demons. Let me explain that briefly. What I mean is she was possessed by demons. Demonic spirits, foul spirits, at least one, perhaps more, had begun to dwell within this woman. Her life was a living nightmare. She lived with fear, she lived with dread, and she lived with darkness. This was her reality. The Bible calls her a young woman, and she she was also a slave girl. And, and, And she was tremendously used, and I don't mean that in a good way, tremendously used of the devil. The Bible says that Paul and Silas encountered her. Actually, she followed them around for a time and would say things that were not of themselves necessarily untrue, but it was a distraction. And one day, Paul and Silas, filled with the Holy Spirit, turned around and they cast the demon or the demons out of her in the name of Jesus. It was powerful, and it would have been a dramatic thing to see. Um, I, I don't like to sensationalize what the enemy, the power of the enemy, but it was a wonderful thing to see this, this person, I'm sure, set free from the power of Satan. Now, that was a very good thing for her, but it wasn't a good thing for the people who owned her. Again, she was a slave girl, and her owners, it's a dreadful thing, dreadful thing, slavery, but her owners derived a great deal of profit from what she could do. She would would tell people's fortunes, inspired by these demon spirits, and the people who owned her made a lot of money from her. The Bible tells us here in Acts 16 that they were angry because now they have a loss of revenue. They rioted. They blamed the riot on Paul and Silas, had them arrested, They were severely beaten, and Paul and Silas were thrown in jail, and their legs were bound by chains. And you thought you had a a bad day. No one here has ever had a day quite like that. I mean, when was the last day that you experienced, first of all, a good thing, uh, uh, casting out a demon, but then then a, a riot, and then false accusation, arrest, and beating, and prison, and chains? That's a hard day. I want to point out, we looked at this last week, I want to point out that these people suffered not for doing bad things, but for doing good things. Specifically, they, they suffered not for, doing, not for doing things that were contrary to what was even proper, they suffered because they trusted God. I mentioned this last week, and I I need to do so again. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you are living and doing what God has called you to do, there is going to be resistance. When you are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, and when you are God's hand extended to this world that is broken and flawed, sometimes 
oftentimes the enemy is going to push back. In fact, if we do not experience that pushback on a regular basis, then we're probably doing something wrong. Or we're probably not being used in the way that God would want us to be. There's going to be tension. We call this spiritual warfare, and that's what what they were experiencing at this time. They were being used of God, and the enemy, Satan, is pushing back, wanting to stifle them, wanting to silence them, wanting to stop them. This should not come as a surprise. Jesus, sometime before, said to his disciples, they hated me and they're going to hate you. Do you understand that we live in a world that when we stand for Jesus Christ, they're going to hate you? Now, we don't like to hear that. We like to hear, man, you know, you're just going to live under God's blessing, and that is, you can still live under God's blessing, but everything's going to be great. Everything is going to be comfortable. Everything is going to be peaceful. Listen, if you stand with Jesus Christ, you're going to get some pushback, and it's going to get hellish at times. And this is what's happening to these people. Acts chapter 16, verse 25, reads this way. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine how strange that must have sounded to the other people who were there? Last week, we focused on those other persons who were in the prison, and how when God's people pray and praise in the hardest of times, Other people will listen. This was a point that was made last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to it on our website. But when God's people pray and praise, not in the not in the just in the best of times, but in the hardest of times, other people are going to watch and other people are going to listen. Now think about this for a moment. In a prison, one of the most common things I'm thinking, I've not been there, but I've known a lot of people who are. I'm thinking that one of the uh, one of the most common things in prison is complaining right? And, and when you complain in prison, nobody notices because that's what you're supposed to do in prison. Because the food's lousy, the beds are hard, and, 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 and the guys around you or the people around you are, are kind of obnoxious or they're kind of difficult or they're kind of challenging at times. You don't, you're in a place you don't want to be, so complaining kind of just goes with the territory. So it's not a big thing. But how about in prison you start praising and praying to God? Do you realize that outside of prison, one of the most common things in our world is complaining? We're, we go through a difficult time at our school, at our job, in our family, uh, in, our, in our bodies, something we, some challenge we go through. One of the most common things that we can do is to complain. But let me tell you something. When the follower of Jesus Christ, instead of complaining, says, this is difficult, but instead of complaining, they begin to praise God and pray, listen, the world will notice. People around you will say, that's weird. We usually complain. We usually bellyache during those times, but it's unusual and it's outstanding when somebody stands up and says, I'm going to trust God. You don't have to get all weird. You don't have to go stand in the middle of the street and, you know, with open sores and start singing, but it, what it does mean is that in the, in the difficult places, in the difficult times to say, I'm going to trust God, it may be difficult, but he is still my hope and my help. And this is what they were doing. Verse 26 continues the account. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Again, since Paul and Silas were the only ones who were praying and praising, you would think only their door would be opened. You would think with them being the only ones praying and praising, it would be only their chains that would come loose. That would make sense. But it says all the doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Again, if you were here last week, you may already have this written down, but when Jesus brings freedom to one, he makes freedom possible to others. There are many of you here this morning that you have had all kinds of chains broken in your life. When you came to Jesus Christ, he delivered you from so many things things that you did, things that you thought, things that you 
experienced things that that you thought no one else could ever get rid of but when you came to Jesus you realized there is power to save and when Jesus set you free he also wants to use you to set other people free you fill in the blank whatever it is that the Lord has delivered you from he wants to use you to set other people free who have the same chains and even different chains. <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't go through a list of all the things, all the sins that I've committed and that are now forgiven, and I won't mention the things that I've not sinned, and, and, and still God has, has, but let me, God has delivered me from some things, but he has used me to see other people delivered from things from which I was never delivered because I never got to in the first place. But it's the power of God that does it. When he broke my chains, there were some other people around me that he used me to break their chains and open their doors. And he's been doing it for a long time. It's the same with you. When Jesus set you free, some of the people around you were also affected. And since that time, and it may have been decades ago, or it may have been two weeks ago, but because you were set free, others are going to be set free. That's a powerful truth. It wasn't just their door that was broken, their chains that were broken, but all of them. Now, verse 20, that's where we left off last week, but verse 27 introduces another person. His name is not recorded, but his title is. Verse 27 says, the jailer woke up. Well, of course, it was midnight, right? That's when you kind of sleep and he had, it's not that he was sleeping on the job, but he was, he, well, he was. he was. He was there. He says he woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, you look at that. It's just a few words there, and it seems like a bit of an overreaction. And you just go, wow, that's a, that's a pretty quick response why would he, thinking that everybody is dead, why would he be so quick to, to kill himself? Well, you have to understand that the penalty for jailers, this is part of the Roman Empire, this was how this system worked, uh, for jailers, the, the penalty for jailers who let their prisoners escape was death. You lose your prisoner, you're going you're gonna to be put to death. Or, and, and in addition to that, oftentimes, not only was the jailer put to death, but so was their immediate family. Now, that, that is a twisted incentive, but it was, very, it was very effective. Because these people were, I mean, that, that made them very, very diligent. And so this man is, is thinking, the, the, the doors are open, all the chains are off. He's thinking all of the prisoners have escaped. The, the jailer then probably very quickly reasoned to himself that, that if, if I make this look like I was killed, if, if it looked like as they were escaping they killed me, perhaps they will spare my family. This all went through his mind very, very quickly. This is why he was willing to kill himself in the hopes that his family would be spared. So he took his sword. It's a particular kind of sword that would be used. It would be used for close combat, not the long kind that we think of, but a short one. And he took that sword out and he turned it around and he put it into his torso and he began... He tensed himself to, to pull it towards himself and take his life. The man was in absolute despair. To say that he was hurting, troubled, was, is an understatement. I can't say that he necessarily wanted to die, but he felt like this was his one option. Let me step away for a moment from Acts chapter 16 and come to 2018. There have been people that I have known and people that you have known 
While we don't know all the details because it was at the very end of their life, they felt like they had one option left. There's hardly a family here that has not been affected in somehow, in some way with, 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 with again, every family here. A few years ago, an uncle of mine took his life. The causes may be many. What brings them to that point may be many. And I leave it to the Lord what happens to them when that happens. But I want to say this. You might be here this morning or listening to this recording on a podcast. And I want to tell you this morning that there is not just one option. There is a Savior who desires to help you. And if, 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 if that has even remotely gone through your mind, I am going to be available following this service. I will be available at any time. If that's even something that you're pondering or something that you've thought about, then you see me after this service and I will give you my personal number. You can get a hold of me at any moment of any day or any night. Because those of us who have experienced this, who've had friends and, and in my case, roommates and, 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 and people who have, who have who, dear friends who have taken their lives, we want to do everything we can. And I want to tell you that the enemy of your soul wants to tell you, is trying to tell you that there is only one option, but I tell you there's another option. His name is Jesus. And he can help you. And there may be a lot of other things that need to be done, but gee, it starts there. So please, please. So here's this man, this jailer. All of this is happening quickly. The chains drop off. The doors drop open. Good thing for the prisoners, bad thing for the jailer. In verse 28, it says, but Paul sh shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Jailer called for lights. They rushed in. And he rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now you think about this. Earlier that night, the jailer regarded Paul and Silas as just a couple of rabble-rousers, a couple of people who who were jailed for inciting a riot. They, they, they were just prisoners to him. They were just people in, you know, uh, cell 107. That's all they were to him. But now, this verse that you have before you, it says that he had fallen before them, and he's calling them sir. <laughs> I mean, how cool is that? I don't take anyone's hard times lightly. I don't take anyone's despairing times lightly. Paul and Silas had been through it. They'd been falsely accused, wrongfully imprisoned, mercilessly beaten, chained down, they've had a rough day. I don't take that lightly. This, this jailer is despairing of life. He's, he's thinking it's all over and he's fearing for his family. I don't take his place lightly. But let me say this, I'm really glad that all of them were there together that night. I'm really glad that they were all there together. I don't delight in Paul and Silas going through what they did, but I'll tell you what, I'm glad they went through what they did, they did so that they could be in that place at that time for that moment for that person. I do not delight when I see some of you going through some of the hardest times, when I see some of you suffering in, in ways that you never expected. I don't delight in that, but I also have to trust my Lord that he still has a purpose and that you might be in that difficult place because he wants to put you across the path of someone who's desperate and looking for Jesus. And this is what's happening here. The jailer was glad that they were there that night, and he asked this question. 
or maybe he pleaded, what must I do to be saved? What a question. What must I do to be saved? Now, what did he mean by that? Well, you know, if, if you were to ask in, in a lot of Christian circles, you know, what does saved mean, you're going to have an answer. I don't know that that's what he was thinking. Remember, he's just, he's thinking that they're, I'm, I'm going to be killed and they're going to kill my family. I think he's more thinking of his skin than he is talking about his soul. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, what do I need to be do to be saved from my, my punishment? Maybe he was talking, maybe he had some kind of an insight and he was looking at something deeper, something eternal. But I do know this, Paul and Silas knew that there was far more than this life. When Paul and Silas heard that word saved, they went to a whole different place. They knew that there was a matter of the man's eternity. When they looked at him, they didn't just go, well, here's a guy in a hard place, you know, doing a tough job, and now he's really concerned. They didn't look at it just on that level, on that plane. Rather, they looked deeper and they said, this man's greatest need is not protection, physical protection for his, himself or his family. His greatest need is eternal. It's his soul. You know, there's a lot of people, when they think about, I need help and I need hope, it's just to pay the bills or it's to get rid of this disease or it's to be relieved from this, this kind of agony that I'm going through. And they don't realize that there's a far deeper need. There's a spiritual need within every person that no amount of physical comfort or ease can ever fix. Paul and Silas knew this that there was this matter of a man's eternity. So they said this, verses 31 and 32, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice, you and your household. They, they didn't stop with him. Remember, they know that this man is concerned for, they went deeper. Again, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all of the others who were in the jailer's house. Remember, this jailer had been concerned for his family. That's why he was willing to take that sword, turn it around and pull it into himself so that he could, in losing his life, he could perhaps spare the, the lives of his family, of his household. Paul and Silas also cared deeply for his family, and they wanted him to know that salvation was not only for him, but for them too. I want to speak to individuals for a moment. If you as an individual have come into a living relationship with Jesus Christ, see, how does that happen? It happens very, quite simply because Jesus did all the work. It happens when we say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins. I surrender. We sang about surrender a lot this morning. I surrender my life to you. I can't fix myself. I believe that you are God, that you died on the cross, and that you rose from the dead. And I ask you to forgive my sins and become my Lord and my Savior. That simple prayer changes the individual. But when you came to Jesus, God also has not only a plan for you, but for your family. Please do not raise your hands, but in your hearts and in your minds, you can feel free to do so. Don't raise your hands. No, no, nothing visible. But how many here, how many here have someone in your family who is near and dear to you but they do not yet know Jesus Christ. I would say almost every person here. Someone you know, it may be a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, a great-grandchild. It may be a close cousin or a niece or a nephew. Someone who is in your family who is right now on the fast track to hell. 
So, man, pastor, that's pretty blunt. It's true. There is a place called hell, and there is a place called heaven. And the thing that makes a difference, or rather the person who makes the difference, is Jesus Christ. But everyone here, probably everyone here, has a family member who does not yet know Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus has plans not only for you, but also for your household. Some of you have been praying for a long time for members of your family. And I'm going to tell you, you keep praying. You keep praying. I've said this many, many times as a pastor, many times to you as, as, as your pastor. I believe, and I know this, that there's going to be a large portion of heaven that, that, who, who, who are there, a, a large percentage of the population of heaven someday is, is going to be there because of a praying mother, father, grandmother, grandfather. And so you keep praying. You keep interceding on their behalf. And it may not happen in your lifetime. It may be ha happen after you're gone. But you keep praying for God to bring that family member to Christ. For other people to come in and share the faith with them. You see it there. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The first part of verse 33 says, At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Stop there for a moment. Took them and washed their wounds. So, uh, it says at that hour of the night, we know that the the Paul and Silas started praying and praising about midnight. So maybe it's 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. All, a lot of things have already changed. The man who oversaw the prison, who had perhaps earlier put the chains on Paul and Silas, who cared nothing about their comfort and health, who had regarded them as just two more prisoners, now it says he washed their wounds. You see that? This guy who hours before, he may have been the very person who put the chains on him, but now it says he is washing their wounds. I don't want you to miss that. The jailer washed his prisoners' wounds. That's an amazing statement in verse 33. <laughs> and after what Paul and Silas had been through, I'm thinking some warm water and a sponge felt pretty good on those backs that were beaten and bloodied. Imagine how good that felt. I'm not willing to try it. I'm just saying that, that had to feel pretty good. To be in a safe place, a tender hand, some warm water, washing their wounds. The Bible records how God physically healed Paul on a number of occasions. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, I don't remember there's a time in which it says Silas was healed, though I'm sure that he was. The power of God is very real then and now, and he healed people then and heals people now. Uh, so I'm, I know the Bible records that Paul was healed on many occasions. This is not one of those occasions. Did you ever notice that? He was not healed. Now God had the power. God had the power to, in a moment, heal this man and give him the skin of a brand new baby. There's another occasion in which people had thrown rocks at his head, left him for dead. The Bible says he got up and walked back into town. I'd walk away from town, but no, he walked right back into town. Another time, the Bible says that a, a snake fastened on his, a poisonous snake, a viper, fastened on his head. He shook it off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Not this time. He's still wounded. He still has the cuts and the welts and the, the abrasions and the bruises on his back. What's happening here is that God is using a new Christian to wash the wounds of another Christian. To wash the wounds. Now, stepping again away from Acts 16, 2018. Every person here has been wounded. 
There are no exceptions. Every one of you, in some ways, in varying degrees, have been wounded somehow, sometime, some way. Someone or something hurt you and wounded you deeply. Some wounds are seen, others are less visible, but every one of them are painful. You have been wounded by someone's words, actions, or perhaps inaction. There are people all around us, everywhere we go, go who have been horribly wounded. I mentioned to someone a couple of weeks ago, I said, I, I'm so glad that I'm a pastor, and I'm so grateful that I get to walk through some of the hardest times with people, and, and that I get to, to be with them in, in their wounds. But I said, I am looking forward to heaven where there are no more wounds. But in the meantime, we're wounded. If you're taking notes, please write this down. Jesus heals wounds, but he uses his people in the healing process. Jesus, is, Jesus alone can heal those kinds of wounds, but he uses his people in the healing process. This is a principle throughout Scripture. God works miracles, but he involves us in the miracle. God desires to do something great, but he uses us in doing the something great. Jesus can heal people. I know it. I've experienced it. But I also know that he uses other people. He uses us in the healing process. I remember the times that someone wrote something. Okay, I found him. I remember the times that someone wrote something or said something or prayed something that did not heal my wounds, for only Jesus can do that. This was many years ago, and the details are unimportant. I was wounded. I was hurting so deeply. hurt so bad I put the family in the car kids were still home this is years ago put the kids in the car we went to Minneapolis just to get away Friday took an extra day my day off is usually Thursday I took Friday off to went to Minneapolis and I'm driving down Interstate 94 those of you who are familiar with St. Paul, it's about Lexington Avenue, and I get a phone call. Randy, you called. And I won't tell you what he said. And he didn't heal me, but he washed a wound. Now, I may have just embarrassed him, and I don't care. That's just one occasion. But I survived, and God healed me. God healed me. But he used someone else. Someone else with just a 45-second phone call. And it was like a warm sponge on a beaten back. You ever had that? You ever received that note, that phone call? You ever had that person stop by and just say, thank you. Thank you for what the difference that you've made and I just want to minister to you. You ever had that? Makes all the difference, doesn't it? Jesus heals. There are going to be some wounds that you're going to have that no one else can ever touch. And, and if you're thinking that someone else is going to heal it, you're, you're sadly mistaken. 
<laughs> Let me take it a step further. Some of you are waiting for the person who hurt you to come back and heal you. You're going to bleed to death because they're not coming. But I know one who can heal you. His name is Jesus. But he's going to use someone else to wash your wound. Someone else to walk alongside you and say, the healing's coming. I'm just here to give you some comfort. Now, it's easy to see ourselves only as the wounded. I want you to do something. Now, this is going to be really hard for you, some of you. It, it, it really will. Because you've been so wounded, you've seen yourself only as the wounded, and you're waiting for someone else to comfort you and God to heal you. Let me say, I want you to step out of that for a moment, and I want you to understand that you are called also to be the washer of wounds. And some of you have been spending much of your time waiting for someone else to come, and God will bring other people to wash your wounds, and Jesus will heal your wounds, but in the meantime, you need to also be the washer of wounds. So I want you to step outside of your own wound for a moment and look around at some of the wounds around you and you can't, you can no longer say, you know what, someday when I'm healed, then I'm going to be the washer of a wound. No, you are a washer of a wound starting today. Stop it with just you be, be, being the recipient. God has called you to be the washer of a wound. It's very easy, just... Be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and encourage and comfort. Walk alongside. Man, it may be making a tater tot casserole and coming by and saying, listen, this is, but I love you and I care for you. Can I pray for you? Yeah. And you will wash their wounds. Verse 33 continues. Then immediately the jailer and all his household were baptized. Verse 34, the jailer brought them to his house and set a meal before him. <laughs> now he's feeding them. Now he's feeding. It was tater tot. I'm sure it was. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now remember, a, a, a short time before, the guy has a sword to his chest. And now he's what? Filled with joy. Why? Because he had come to believe in God, both him and his whole household. There's an entire family who had, at, at first, no hope, but who had come into eternal hope through Jesus Christ. And then, having declared their faith in Christ, having experienced salvation, it says, and they were baptized. They were baptized. The baptism didn't save them. It was their profession of faith. But it was followed by this declaration to the people who were there. And later on, it was an outward indication of an inward change. Like them, persons who are baptized still in this day, 2018, still declare to other people that Jesus has saved them and set them free. That's what baptism is. That's what baptism is. It is declaring and stating to other people, let me tell you what Jesus has done in me, and I am going to follow his, not suggestion, but command to be baptized in water. In two weeks, in two weeks, right about here. Ah, maybe we'll switch it up and we'll put it right about here. <laughs> I don't know, it might be dead center. I'm not sure how we're going to configure it, but in two weeks on this platform, seven persons, perhaps more, will be baptized in water. People who have given their lives to Christ, but in two weeks they will in word and in action, declare what Jesus has done in them. Now, come to the point of the service where I'm about to offend some people. So be it. 
Some of you have experienced a living relationship with Jesus Christ. You've given your life to him, but you've not been baptized in water. You've not had that. The Bible's Jesus made this commitment. Just before he ascended into heaven, he says, to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a command. Following that profession of faith. Now, some of you right now are thinking, I was baptized when I was an infant. Here's where I'm going to offend. No, you weren't. You say, yes, I was. I've got the certificate. Baptism follows a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It is an outward expression of something that has been done internally. So, does that mean that your parents... No, they they were well-meaning, perhaps. Maybe they didn't know any different. It was a part of their tradition. I I respect that, and and I'm not putting them down or anyone else. I'm simply saying that the Bible says, believe and then be baptized. So this morning, if you've not been baptized, then along with these many others who are going to be baptized, you will be baptized as well. And you're going to declare, we're going to record it, video record it, declare what Jesus has done. This is what these people were doing. They were declaring again in word and in action what Jesus had done in them. In the span of six hours. Verse 25 says, Paul and Silas began praying and praising about midnight. Verse 35 records daybreak. In the span of only six hours, perhaps even less, two men trusted God in the hardest of times. Every door and every chain in the place was broken. In the span of less than six hours, One man went from suicidal despair to filled with joy. His life was transformed. His sins were forgiven. His eternal destination was redirected from hell to heaven. His family was saved. And God used him to bring healing to others. All within the span of of only six hours. And I say, God, do it again. God, do it again. God, do it in your life. God, do it in your family's life. You may wake up someday and think it's just another day, but in the span of just a few hours, God's going to do a transformation work in you and through you. God, do it again. One more thing. One more thing. I don't know if it's related or not, but you know what Mark chapter 15 tells us? (laughs) I don't know if there's a correlation, but I think it's pretty neat. Mark chapter 15 tells us that Jesus hung on the cross, and he guesses how long? Six hours. Jesus hung on the cross for a mere six hours. Oh, it was a long, incredibly long six hours for him. But within the span of six hours, Jesus suffered and died on that cross. And he gives us eternal life. All within the span of six hours. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our time is about done. We are about to close. Yet before we do that, it doesn't take six hours. It can happen in six seconds. Is there anyone here that would indicate to me with a a hand that's raised and maybe just lifting up your eyes and catching my eye, I need Jesus to transform me.
you may not be despairing like the jailer was, but you know that you need salvation. And maybe in listening to this message and the Holy Spirit speaking to you, you realize, yeah, I think I know what the answer is. It's Jesus. Yeah, well, you're right. If that's you this morning, I, w- I really want to pray with you so that when you leave this place today, you will know, you will leave knowing Jesus died for me and he saves, he can save me. So before we go any further, is there anyone here that would just lift up their hands? And I want to pray with you. Thank you. Right down here. Thank you. Two persons right here. Anyone else? Thank you. Is there anyone else? The main level or in the balcony? I would like you to Again, with your heads bowed, would, would, you, would you pray this prayer with me? If you, if you put up your hand, and, and perhaps you didn't, but you're, you're not willing to pray this prayer, would you, would you agree with me on this? This is a powerful prayer that when prayed in sincerity begins, doesn't complete, but begins a living relationship with Jesus. And he's going to save you. It's, it's going to happen right now. He's going to say, he's going to transform you. So would you pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus. Go ahead and pray it out loud. Lord Jesus. I recognize my need for you. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose from the dead for me. Come into my heart and forgive my sins. Save me. Set me free. Break the chains. I want to live for you. I believe that you are God that you died and rose from the dead for me. I accept you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you prayed that prayer, if you prayed that prayer, it may have been the first time, you may have prayed something like a long time ago, and maybe something happened and you wandered. But listen, if you prayed that prayer, God is going to, he's begun a transforming power. Why? Because you just asked him in. The stuff that you read about here in the book of Acts that we read this morning is going to start happening to you. And I'd like all of you to stand. And here's what I'd like you to do. Remember, Paul said that salvation is for you and for your household. Now, now I'd like you to do this. If, if there's someone in your household, it, it, it may not be immediate family, but there's someone in your family who does not yet know you, my hands up, someone very, very close to me, a member of my family, who many years ago walked away from the Lord, and I've been praying for her for the better part of 35 years. If, if you have somebody like that, would you, would you lift up your hands, just like this, and let's, let's pray. Lord, we lift up those persons to you. We see them in We see them in our minds. Their names are coursing through our heads right now. They're very dear to us. But Lord Jesus, when you saved me, you also gave me the opportunity to share the good news with others. And so we pray for them today. We pray for that that loved one, that family member. And we stand upon the promise that you gave to a man whose name is not yet known to us, but whose name is known to you, that jailer. What you did in his family, do in our family. What you did there, do again here. 
I pray, Lord Jesus, that in the weeks and in the months and perhaps in the years ahead, but Lord, sooner than later, we pray that we will hear that they too have come into a living relationship with you and are even baptized in water as a declaration of their faith. We pray that for them. We bring their names before you again, their, their faces before you again. <coughs> because we trust in you and in you alone. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone needs a Savior. And Lord, would you also with these hands, would you empower these hands? Would you empower these hands to be the, the, the washer of wounds? People around us who are so brutalized and beaten. God, would you use us? You're going to heal them, but would you use us to wash them, comfort them, care for them in their wound? Use us. Use these hands. Use this heart. I pray it. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We trust you. For we can trust in no other. Now, Lord, I pray your blessing, your favor, your protection, your anointing, your power upon these people. Help them to love you. Help us to love you and to love others. To share Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. This is your command. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in the presence and in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. These altars are open. Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing.